Terrific. Thank you. And good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay and I am the host for the presentation uh, this morning. And today is Sunday, December 11th, 2022. I I'd like to give you the share ID numbers for Friday, uh, Friday, December 9th for the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting. That number is 19,732. That's 19732. And for the 10 a.m. meeting, that number is 19,733. That's 19733. This morning, a vision for you presents how it works, gateway to the solution. So this morning, our speaker is gonna is gonna do her very best to bring to life the pages of chapter five, uh, how it works, and, and she's gonna uh, thread that together with her personal experience. You know, the, the, the big book is, is a very clear text. I have found it to be so. In fact, uh, you know, when, when one follows its instructions precisely, uh, we're led to a result, right? And, and, and that result, what, what, what results are we led to? Well, we, in other words, the book serves as a roadmap leading us somewhere. And the question is, where does it lead us? Well, we're told that through the implementation of these steps, of these 12 steps, spiritual in nature, each one of them, right, that we're going to have what's called the spiritual awakening. And, and that's really important because uh, the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps is going to bring us into conscious contact with our creator. And perhaps it's going to do that at a depth that we previously never encountered. At least that was the case for me. You know, perhaps at a depth, perhaps at a level that we hadn't encountered before. And, um, and for the alcoholic, for the compulsive overeater who is absolutely powerless, we learn that we are powerless to overcome this malady through self-will. So Marshall, by our own will, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to do it. But that when we, uh, when, this, when this malady that we were powerless over is overcome uh, and we're brought into a state of spiritual restoration, and that, again, is through the implementation of the steps, this means uh, life rather than death. You know, we, we don't have to die from this disease. It means life. And I know that there are two kinds of death. There's the last breath that we'll all take, right? That's assured. Uh, but there, there's, that other, that, there's that other death. There's the death while you're alive, you know, feeling dead inside. And, uh, and, and we don't want to give another minute to the, uh, to the ravages of this disease. So we, because of that, we access the one power that will solve this problem. And, and then, of course, when that happens, that we will stop killing ourselves with food because the obsession will be driven out. And, the, you know, basically the effect of the alcoholic foods will be replaced by the effect of this unimpeded relationship with our higher power. And so, you know, the, forgive me for a moment for, you know, sort of humanizing, if you will, the 12 steps as if, they're, as if this is a person. But the... You know, I once heard it said that, you know what, Larry, the 12 steps could care less about what I think about them. Because, the, you know, the, the, the reality is the roadmap for having a revolutionary spiritual transformation, it, it doesn't give bonus points out for your intellect. 
It doesn't give uh, you know a special uh, uh, special trophy for your 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 perfectionism. And I found, if anything, that these can keep one bedeviled in the disease, right? So the practical program of spiritual action seems to despise false pride and things like self-righteousness and intolerance of others and judgment of others. And yet what may seem paradoxical at first, you know, to this notion of that, you know, we learn in the book that half measures avail us nothing. It's not really that at all. See, we take the steps as only a human being can take them. We take them imperfectly. Perhaps the only, the only step that we take perfectly is the first one in that we, we put down the food. We, we own up to our powerlessness through a demonstration uh, to our higher power, perhaps to, to others, that we are going to put the food down entirely, entire abstinence. And in that process, what we get? What do we get? We get to move from a self-centered consciousness to a God-centered consciousness. And joining us this morning to share her experience, strength, and hope, and to you know, to really bring to light uh, the uh, chapter five, working with others, is Phoebe B from Vermont. And Phoebe is a is a very dedicated member of Overeaters Anonymous, and she is a a devoted practitioner of the 12 steps that are that are found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that have led to her own spiritual transformation. And as such, you know, she's committed to carrying the message of recovery to the still suffering compulsive overeater and to practicing these principles in all her affairs. So at this point, please join me in uh, welcoming Phoebe B to the line this morning. Phoebe, good morning. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for that wonderful introduction and your service this morning. So I am Phoebe B. from Vermont. I am a recovered compulsive overeater food addict. Um, So I'm just going to kind of walk you through what I'm going to do this morning. The first 10 minutes or so is going to be a little history just to give you some context. Then I'm going to move into the chapter, How It Works as a Gateway to the Solution. So... um, My statistics are I'm 72, almost 73. My highest known weight was 258, and I'm maintaining between a 95 and 100-pound weight loss. So my task today is to be open enough to allow God to speak to you through me. Now, I'm going to read some or most of this because um, doing a longer talk like this, I just feel a bit more comfortable doing that. I also like to tell stories from my life to highlight how it works in my life, how I experience the promises of the program that bring me to the solution. So what happened? Well, I was born into a post-World War II family. I am an official baby boomer. My biological mom died when I was six months old and my dad remarried a year later. Up until age eight, I was what you hear referred to as a free-range kid. My favorite article of clothing was my Davy Crockett hat and my blue jeans. I couldn't wear pants to school in the 1950s, so when I would wear those things, I felt freedom. Roamed the woods and the fields with my brothers. We built forts. We dug holes. We made dams and streams. We built campfires. It was pretty idyllic. Beginning at age eight, though, I experienced what so many in these rooms do, a lost childhood from seven years of sexual abuse. 
In the post-war years of the 50s and early 60s, death and abuse were things just simply not talked about. I was born into a family with a propensity for addiction. At age eight, early in the abuse, I discovered that eating sweet, fatty foods made me not feel what I didn't understand. And I'm going to read from the doctor's opinion, and although it doesn't describe a child, it describes the addict. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. I felt good. I felt better when I ate sweet and fatty foods. I gained weight, and in my family, I was referred to laughingly as pleasingly plump, Chiba, spider woman, because I could still scale trees in my Davy Crockett hat and blue jeans. I had three very creative brothers when it came to name-calling. My mom put me on a diet, and if you grew up in this time period, you might recognize this, that disgusting bluish skim milk. I couldn't eat the portion sizes my brothers did, but I kept gaining. No one could figure out why. You and I know those sweet, fatty foods that I got good at stealing and hiding. In fifth grade, I got a dress for the first day of school. It had poofy sleeves, and um, so the puffs came out, but there was a little hem around the sleeves. It didn't have elastic, but my arms were too big, and so I squeezed my arms into those sleeves. By the end of the day, my arms ached because the sleeves were too tight. But this began a lifetime of what it describes on page 427 in the big book in the story Window of Opportunity. I had my first awakening in AA. The speaker said, if you're an apple, you can be the best apple you can be, but you can never be an orange. I was an apple all right, and for the first time I understood that I had spent my life trying to be an orange. I spent my life trying to be an orange. My addiction blossomed. But it took a visual side road in high school and college. I was athletic. I lost a lot of weight, but I was still binging. I added drugs, alcohol, and sex. A holiday in high school for me, you're going to laugh at this. The holiday for me was when the vending machines came to my high school. The vending machines for candy came first and then soda. And I was happy because I could get as much of that kind of stuff as I wanted, and none of it showed on me because I was so athletic. I began my professional life, and I tamped down my stress with one regular-sized bag of candy and one soda on my way home, which then over four decades grew to multiple stops, bags and boxes, perhaps multiple times during the day, if I could. I had the kind of job where you couldn't leave during the day. Um, but on my way home, I certainly had multiple stops. I was like the actor. I liked running the show. I had a high-profile job. I was well-respected in my community, receiving local, state, national awards, but nothing was ever enough. I needed constant acknowledgement. Um, I wore out my family and friends. 
I had boxes of cards that I saved, cards of gratitude and appreciation. And because I needed to see how much people appreciated me, but no box was ever enough. I'm grateful to say that in recovery, I distilled many boxes down to one shoebox of very special ones. On page 61 in the big book, it says, uh, he may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, he's more likely to have varied traits. Well, that was me. I was all of those. But I was also riddled with, on page 145, it says, um, resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. I call these, um, but I was thin. Even though I had all of those things, I was thin because of over-exercising, restricting, and I call these the smoke and mirror years. Food, as my primary addiction came cascading back in the early 1990s, when as an elementary school principal, a child of eight revealed her abuse to me, which was very similar to mine. I did all the right professional things to support and advocate for her, but my own feelings came crashing back, and just like that eight-year-old, I had no capacity to deal with. So that began two decades of a parade through therapists, lovely people who had no idea how to deal with a food addict with a trauma history. I just kept gaining weight. Would it be therapy, medication, hypnosis, hiking 100 miles in the Rockies, commercial weight loss programs, self-help books? Thousands of dollars spent on all the things you've spent money on. I lived in purgatory. From the outside, I looked good. I was a single mom, had what looked like the perfect divorce, but the underbelly, suicidal thoughts, manipulation, lying, overspending. I almost lost my house, but I couldn't stop and I couldn't stop from starting. I remarried, remarried a wonderful man, and it continued. There wasn't anyone in this picture but me. Self-reliance had served me well and was my survival, but it wasn't working anymore, and I kept getting bigger, even though now I was married to a wonderful man. Didn't make the difference. I didn't know how to ask for help without it being dramatic or coming across as a victim. From a family member, I saw recovery. I saw the fellowship, and I wanted that. In 2011, I began attending a local OA meeting. In 2014, I began listening to A Vision for You. I became very articulate and well-versed in the big book. I learned a lot. Notice how many I's I'm saying here. Self-reliance. I was not surrendered. I went through the steps several times. I had lovely, generous sponsors, and some of you I know are on the line today. And I learned a lot from various formats. In January 2014, I began intense trauma therapy. In the doctor's opinion on page XXVIII, it says some people may need extra help. That was me. I was blessed with a professional whose expertise was trauma, food addiction, with knowledge of the 12 steps. Trauma work was critical in my next foray into the steps. 
In July 2015, I began a structured program weighing and measuring my food. I was abstinent for seven months. I had a wonderful sponsor. I began sponsoring, speaking, but I still wasn't fully surrendered. And I relapsed until October 2016. In the doctor's opinion on page XXIX describes me perfectly. After they had succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over again. So for 10 months, I yo-yoed back and forth. New sponsor, began sponsoring again, relapsed, and on and on for 10 months. So many wonderful people hung in there with me. And a number of you are on the line today, and it actually brings me to tears to think about all of those people that hung in with me, and I can see your faces, how you hung in there with me. In October of 2016, I hit my final bottom. I surrendered that I was powerless and my life had become truly unmanageable. One of my first acts of surrender was to get a food plan from somebody other than me. I got a food plan from a nutritionist. The next surrender was putting the food in the cup or on the scale. I was rigorously honest about my food. I needed some additional help, so I went to treatment, and my journey to the solution truly began. Surrendering to something outside myself, which I call my higher power or God, began to build the arch through which I could go under to recovery. The key became turning my will, my thoughts, and my life, actions, over to my higher power. Now I was ready to begin my spiritual journey because the food was down and I could truly become a channel to my higher power. It hasn't been all rainbows and unicorns because I'm human with human frailties. But what I hope to share in this next section on how it works is how it's working for me. What I hope to do is highlight parts of this gateway chapter and how it sets the stage for the other steps. So how it works, what is it like now? Page 58 begins the chapter, is there an easier, softer way? If there is for me, I haven't found it. And I said, er, as I said earlier, I've tried many things. The capacity to be honest took years. But once I became honest about everything, beginning with the food, the doors creaked open and the mystery of this program unfolded. So I'm going to read you on page 58, just the first few lines of this chapter. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. So back to my path. With the food plan, the doors creaked open and the mystery of this program unfolded. I am rigorously honest about everything. Food. It's four ounces of chicken, not 4.1 ounces. When I say how long it took to do something, <clears throat> if it took three hours, not three and a half, I say three. I used to say three and a half, which is what I used to do to make me seem more important, a harder worker, or you name it, anything that inflated my ego. 
The consequences of being rigorously honest is that sometimes I don't like the answer. You mean I could have done that differently or better? This is a program of ego deflation. On page 59 in How It Works, it says, Half measures availed us nothing. Proceeded by, if you have decided we have what you want and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. I have tried so many half measures with the food which I've mentioned. And I'll tell you one half measure that I tried. Before I was in OA, I defined my abstinence as um, certain candies that I couldn't have. I'm not going to name specific ones because I know that might trigger some people, but there were specific candies and sodas that I said I can't have. So on the wall of my garage, which is still, these marks are still there, I started with chalk marks to mark off the number of days that I didn't have these particular items. But I could have other candy items that didn't have certain things in them. But I defined my abstinence and I kept track. 90 days I went without having those certain food items. So that was a half measure that I tried. In recovery, I now address life issues. I have a propensity towards fixing and controlling and advice giving. The easier, softer way here is for me to launch right into advice giving rather than pausing. On page 87, we are directed as we go through the day we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. This plays out over and over in my life, particularly right now with a challenge in our family regarding a shared property between my husband and one of his children. When I pause, I can ask myself the question, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? Does it need to be said by me? In that spiritual pause, I can lean in to say, thy will, not mine, be done. I am not one of the owners of this property, but decisions directly impact me So I have to be vigilant in not going to the easier, softer way and forgetting the pause. When I forget, I am like the actor, as it says on page 60. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. An important part of this chapter as we move to the third step prayer is the question, what does it mean in my life for my actions? What does it mean for my will, my thoughts, to turn those over to God as we understand him? The direction I find helpful is on page 93 and in italics, so we know it's important. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles And later on the page, to be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. So in this family situation, I was quite distressed recently about some new information that both my husband and I got regarding the other family member. I woke up at one in the morning. 
and could not go back to sleep. So I decided to put my earphones in and listened to Joe and Ch- a Joe and Charlie recording, actually on how it works. I was feeling overwhelmingly powerless. After listening for an hour, I truly got guidance from my higher power um, that through to acknowledge to my husband how hard and sad this has to be with him for it's his child. I consciously turned my life over to my higher power and had a middle-of-the-night loving conversation with my husband, with me being a loving witness for his suffering, asking him some questions, trying to fix or control, rather to help him get his own thoughts straight. In the end, he made a decision about an action he can take. So what does the third step prayer mean anyway? God, I offer myself to thee. This to me is humbling myself to something greater than me, to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. This is the collaboration as evidenced by that early Sunday morning work with my higher power. The outcome is not up to me. Relieve me of the bondage of self. I am at my core a kind and loving person and that is laced with selfish and self-centeredness. When I say this prayer, I am asking to be relieved of that selfish and self-centeredness. That I may better do thy will. Well, on my own, I actually don't always get it right as much as I'd like to think that I do. Sometimes when I do get it right and get acknowledgement for it, acknowledgement for it, my ego lights up like the lights on a Christmas tree. See, you can do it on your own. With this prayer, I'm asking for guidance and help, extinguishing the Christmas tree, moving away from ego and listen for the help. Take away my difficulties. It's not like fairy dust and poof, they're gone. But in the pause for the moment, I have help setting them aside, and for some of them, doing that over and over does remind, does remove them. That victory over them, it's a win when with, when with that help of putting my own difficulties to the side in the pause allows me to see another suffering like I was able to see early Sunday morning. Witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and and thy way of life. In that pause, my ego is not on fire, and I can be guided to what is the next right action. May I do thy will always. That's the hope of this prayer, and a pathway to the solution, because the solution is spiritual. The hope this prayer tells me is that with God's guidance, I can function and act in a non-self-centered way. And that is my life's work in recovery. On page 64, it says, our liquor was but a symptom. But what does that mean? This is preceded by it could have little effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. It's incredibly clear to me now that food was never my problem. It was the solution, I thought, to the things that had been blocking me. 
Now, fixing and controlling is my default solution. Just feelings of fear, inadequacy, not belonging, being invisible. The more intense these feelings are without admitting them, the more likely I am to revert to fixing and controlling. In the next paragraph, the description of step four begins. There are a number of special editions just on step four. So I'm not going, going to go into a great deal of detail on step four. Um, so I'm going to talk about how step four helps me go through the gateway to the solution. Step four here is describing a business, is, is um, comparing um, a business that doesn't do a regular inventory. It goes bankrupt. So we learn here how to do a thorough inventory, which then taught me how to do a nightly review, which I find incredibly helpful. Of course, at the beginning, I had to do all the previous steps that got me there because we followed the directions sequentially in this textbook. And Larry alluded to that in the introduction. Recently, with my husband, my sponsor picked up on how my nightly review, I was identifying the same fear several times. So she suggested that I do a fear inventory, which is part of step four, but it continues through the other steps. I had, um, I had a fear about my husband's anxiety as he ages. Why do I have this fear? My, so my sponsor asked me to do a fear inventory that included these questions. Why do I have this fear? How did self-reliance fail to solve this problem? Say the prayer, dear God, please remove this fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. Then she asked me to write a letter back from God to me. In that fear inventory, I was guided to acceptance with loving boundaries. And I had one very recently on a snowy day. This time, it was about me driving in the snow. My husband was very anxious about that. But after all, we do live in Vermont, and it's not unusual to drive in the snow. But my husband has a high degree of anxiety, and I know it's all born out of love. So I, I paused, and I said to him, I really appreciate your concern. I'm still going to go, and I'll text you when I get there. Done. No argument but an acceptance that he has some anxiety and I could help by telling him that I got there safely. On page 64, it says resentment is the number one offender from its stem, all forms of spiritual disease. Joe and Charlie do a great description of resentment. It's replaying over and over the same scene. And from that constant replaying stems all forms of spiritual disease. By looking, looking at how the instincts of, I'm just going to take a sip here of my tea. Hold on a second. By looking at how the instincts of self-esteem, pride, security, ambition, or ambition, personal and sex relations had been interfered with, allow me to get out of the endless loop. How have I acted like that person? Have the resentment towards. That's the realization and sometimes the most powerful part of this inventory. And when spiritual growth begins and my faith begins to grow, faith in a higher power and faith in myself in recovery with help. On pages 70 to 71, it says, in this book, 
you read over and over again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Recently, I reflected on this. What the book doesn't say is that my life will be void of challenges. Before program and even early in program, I thought I could handle my challenges. Self-reliance failed us. That has gradually changed. It became crystal clear to me in February 2020, soon after my beloved brother David died. I was going to see my sister-in-law, niece and nephew to talk about the service. We had already had some conversations about it, and she and the kids had asked that my other two brothers and I come up with a composite to share. Now, my other two brothers and I had very different relationships with David, which was unique. David and I were very close. He described it as a twinship, even though we weren't twins. The other two were somewhat distant, competitive, but always loving. They didn't want to do a composite. They wanted their own voices to be heard. I felt similarly, but I was extremely aware that my sister-in-law and I were just beginning to reestablish a relationship after 15 years of acrimony. So I really didn't know what to do. So I'm going to paint you a picture of this particular day. So you know I live in Vermont. In February, it can be really cold and snowy. On this particular day, we call it a bluebird day. The sky was just picture-perfect blue. It had snowed the night before. The snow was glistening. And to get to my sister-in-law's house, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually starting to tear up describing this scene to you. To get to my sister-in-law's house, I had to drive over a mountain. Absolutely beautiful drive, beautiful views. So in that sparkling snow, I got in the car to drive over the mountain. I put on some beautiful music, and I said a prayer asking God to help me to know what to do. I had no idea what to do. I got there. We began talking about the service, and there it was the place to say how we were feeling. My nephew said, so how much time feels right for each of you? I said what I thought, and he said, done. And my sister-in-law thanked me for being honest. God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. No manipulation, no lying, no nothing. Just rigorous, kind honesty. That was the grace of God. And what faith can do for me what I can't do for myself. I used to think it was grit and determination, but really it's faith and grace because grit and determination often meant I was trampling on someone else. Grace and faith means I'm not trampling on anyone else. I can face anything because I have what I need. A higher power that can help me. Sometimes that comes in the silence, sometimes in a guided meditation, sometimes through a fellow, and sometimes, you know what, sometimes it's in the woods, sometimes it's in the t- on the top of a mountain, sometimes it's down by our river. It is just simply a mystery. On page 71 it says, if you have already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you've made a good beginning. That being 
So you have swallowed and digested some big chunks about yourself. This is ongoing and never finished. It's why we go through the steps once every year or two, and it's the promise of I will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. One of my grosser handicaps has been that information is power, and in my life, I have succumbed to gossip as a way to feel important. It doesn't come up very often since recovery, but it's there, and I have to be vigilant. I made a terrible error in November 2019 when David was struggling with his cancer treatment, and I ran into a mutual friend in a store. She didn't know David was sick, and a split second, and without thinking, I told her. She was horrified, immediately went home and called David. I didn't know this, but David had just been admitted to the hospital when she called. He called me the next day, so very angry. He's a very private person, and I had eroded his trust. I did that because that grosser handicap of the need to be important took precedence over the pause and the integrity of maintaining David's privacy. I was not a good sister that day. Fortunately, David and I worked through that. I made amends, and I'm so grateful I was able to be part of what I call his inner campfire circle in his final days. So in step four, I learned how to face my grosser handicaps, which then allowed me passage through the gateway to the other steps. And recently, I had some information about a friend's illness. And another friend said one day, sitting on my front porch, did you hear about, and I paused before saying anything about our other friend. And she said something totally different and unrelated. I preserved my other friend's confidentiality. So that promise of I will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, my past informs my present and my future. And I did not erode someone's trust that day. I'm going to wrap up my stories with an experience my husband and I had recently with our dog, Lily. Two weeks ago, we had to make the very difficult decision to let her go. She was 14 and failing. We had a lovely last day with her, sitting on our sun porch in the sunshine and giving her an ice cream sandwich. And I had made a Shutterfly book about her this summer when I knew she was failing. So we sat on the sun porch with her and we looked at the pictures of Lily and talked to her about um, her life and her when she was a puppy and when she was with our other dog. And it was just a wonderful, peaceful day. And we took her to the place with it that helped us um, have her pass. And she had a very lovely, peaceful passing, which really was a sacred time between me, Bob, and Lily. In the past, before recovery, I would have relayed all the details to anyone that asked as a way to glean as much sympathy and intention as possible out of a very sad situation. Now it feels like a sacred moment, that moment of passing between the three of us. The arch built in steps one, two, and three. Step one is the foundation. It's solid. I know I'm powerless and my life can be unmanageable. Step two is the cornerstone. I'm willing to turn my life over. 
Step three is the keystone. And if you see keystones in buildings, you know that it's that keystone is really important because it holds the arch. Turning my life, my actions, and my will, my thoughts over to my higher power allows me to do the hard work in step four, then allows me to move through the broader gateway to the solution of a spiritual transformation and the psychic change of the remaining steps. And I'm going to read um, today as I wrap up here with a favorite quote from the story Gutter Bravado on page 511. This is what the writer says. And though I'm not sure where my journey may take me next, I know I'll owe it to the grace of God and to three words to the three words of the 12 steps, continue, improve, and practice. Oh, and one more thing. They told me, humility is the key. As I move through the gateway to the solution, it is with the cloak of humility, and daily I get to continue, improve, and practice. Because I get a daily reprieve, and I can't rest on my laurels, or those grosser handicaps will come roaring back. And with that, I'm going to pass. So thank you for letting me to be of service today. It's been a great honor to do this on A Vision for You, and I pass. Uh, thank you so much, Phoebe, for your wonderful presentation this morning. It was, it was really infused with uh, transparency and compassion and hope. And so now we're going to – so thanks for your generosity, Phoebe. So we're going to transition now to our Q&A, our question and answer uh, portion of the program. If you have a specific question for, for Phoebe B. from Vermont, please go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star 1 and give me your first name and last initial, and we'll uh, post some questions. Questions only, please. We'll, we'll Jack, post some questions for Phoebe. Hey, Jack. Elena C. Heather M. Elena? Heather. Larry, did you get Katie? I did. I got Jack, Katie, oh, Elena, fine. and Heather so far. No, that's okay. Thanks. Bro. Jason K. Jason, good morning. Who else? And it's star one. We can catch you on the next go around here. Okay, Sherry so I, I. Hi, Sherry. Hi. Okay. Let's go with that here. And uh, so here's who I heard for this first round here of questions um, is Jack, Katie, Elena, Heather, Jason, and Sherry. So let's start with that. And we'll start with uh, Jack uh, W. followed by KVG. Hey, Jack, good morning. Hey, buddy. Jack, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for your service. I ju I'll just keep it brief, um, ma'am. Thank you so much for for sharing your life experience with us this morning. And I assume, being um, by your share, that one of your daily practices is living in steps ten, eleven, and twelve. But if you could, could you share with us, like your daily deal on how you work the program as far as for 
helping others. I'm, I'm sure you have sponsees, but I'm just curious how, how you work your program on a daily basis, if you don't mind. Thank you. Sure, Jack. Thank you for the question. Um, so, yeah, I have uh, a number of daily practices. Um, I, um, as I said, first I follow a food plan. Um, and I, every day, I talk to my sponsor um, and share with her um, what my food is for the day. Uh, I then, um, actually, before I talk to my sponsor, I'll back up a little bit. Before I talk to my sponsor, I start the day even before I get out of bed with a prayer. I do the set-aside prayer. I do the third-step prayer the seventh step prayer, the eleventh step prayer, um, whatever's going on that particular day and whatever prayer strikes me for the day. And then I do a meditation in the morning um, and then I speak with my sponsor. I guess I do have sponsees um, and I during the day, of course, if I have Spot checks to do. I do spot checks. Um, as I said, one of the greatest gifts and tools is the spiritual pause. Um, and then at night, I do a um, I do a, a nightly review, um, just as it directs us in the big book um, for the nightly review um, on page. Um, in the big book on age uh, 86, when we retire at night, I ask myself those questions. Was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do I have an apology? Have I kept something to myself? Was I kind and loving? Um, What did I pack into the stream of life? Um, And uh, what did I do for others? Um, So I write about that. I do a whole review on that. Um, I do five gratitudes every day, and my gratitudes are not just a list. My gratitudes are, I am grateful for, and then I write, because. Why am I grateful for that thing? And I found since I started doing that particular format for my gratitudes, um, I think a lot more deeply about what does that gratitude mean for me? Um, And... I do service all over the place. I do service in my community. I do service in my home meeting by leading or speaking on a tool. Um, Right now, I happen to be doing service for my daughter by taking care of her dog. Um, And um, those are my daily practices. It's what I do every single day. I talk to fellows every day. I talk to at least four fellows three fellows and my, um, actually five, um, and my sponsor, my sponsee, and if I'm temp sponsoring people. So I I talk to a lot of people in recovery every day. So Jack, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thanks, Jack, for the question. (laughs) It does. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Okay, next up with the question, we have Katie G, followed by Elena. Katie, good morning. Hi, Larry. Hi, Phoebe. Thank you so much for your presentation. It was great to hear you. 
Um, you commented on a really favorite topic of mine in terms of ego reduction, and I know your whole top your whole talk was on ego reduction, but I just was hoping you could um, just expand a little bit on you know if there's like a daily thing that you do to ensure you're getting ego reduction or how that works for you. Okay, Katie, thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, well, first of all, when I share my review with my sponsor, my sponsor gives me feedback. And like I said um, when I was talking, um, you know, getting feedback uh, and being rigorously honest, I don't always like the answer. Um, so, you know, like recently when I was talking to her about my husband's anxiety, um, she asked me to do something. Um, she asked me to do a fear inventory. Um, and that contributed to my ego reduction because it brought me to a place of acceptance that, you know, I'm not, I'm not the paragon of virtue when it comes to stress. I have stress too. And it helped me to relate to my husband in doing, um, if I need to do an official 10th step, I use a fourth step format. And I love the um, part where it asks me to think about um, how had I done something similar to the person that I was resentful towards. That's a realization that, that, that contributes to huge ego reduction for me. Um, I think ego reduction also comes from knowing people pretty intimately in the program and them giving me honest feedback and my willingness to accept it. Um, and I just keep going back to the spiritual pause. When I'm agitated or doubtful, what am I doing? How am I contributing to this situation? Um, that also contributes to ego reduction. And also noticing when my ego is lit up like a Christmas tree, when somebody gives me acknowledgement about something, okay, let's tamp this down a little bit here. You know, you're, you're not the best such and such in the world. Just tamp it down a little bit. Um, so those are some of the things that contribute to ego reduction for me. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thanks for the question, Katie. Okay, we move on to Elena, followed by Heather. Elena, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for your service and your words of wisdom. Thank you, Phoebe, for your story. Um, what struck me the most in your story is one of my amazing experiences as a result of working on the set, which is finding the voice of my higher power. And before the stops, I was clueless about it. Now, you spoke of all these places where you do find it, such as uh, from others, from a vision for you, from, from the mountain. Now, uh, what I'm in awe is finding the voice of my higher power inside of me. I wonder if you have that experience and you want to elaborate on it, because I'd like to learn more about that. Thank you. Okay, so I call finding that voice of my higher power in me little God nudges. Um, it's, it is a felt 
sense. And you know, it says it says in the um, in the spiritual experience, which I love. And I'm just going to read just going to read this part to you. Um, and this is on page. Um, oh wait a minute. Oh. Starts on the bottom of page 567, it says, With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped into an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. So it's a, to me, it's a felt sense. Um, and I call it little God nudges. Um, you know, I might be out in the woods, I might be hiking. And I might be pondering something. And a thought will come to me that, okay, that's where I need to go with that. That's what happens. Is that sometimes it's a physical feeling. Sometimes it's a warm feeling. Sometimes it's um, something that comes into my mind. Sometimes it might be um, a beautiful bird that I see, um, you know, in the winter in Vermont, when we, when I see cardinals, there's something very spiritual about that. And that says to me, pay attention, pay attention to what's going on here. There's a message there. So I can't say directly that I hear the voice of God in my head. It's that inner resource. It's that felt sense. This is the part of the program that I think is is very hard to put down on paper. Is a definition of what that voice sounds like because it sounds different to every single one of us. And it sounds different to me at different times. It might come to me as I'm sitting by our river and I'm hearing the rushing water. It might come to me through that. It might come through the wind and the trees. It might come through, um, you know, watching a grandchild play. It might come through, well, I'll tell you an experience that I had one time. And I've done a guided meditation on this. Um, So I have four grandchildren. Watching them play or tell stories. If any of you have young children, young grandchildren, you know that at about three or four, when kids start to have, you know, a pretty good facility with language, They love to tell stories that go on and on. And they say, and this, and this, and this. But because that's your child or your grandchild, you have, or I have, inordinate amounts of patience to listen to that. So when I I feel that sense in me of that patience, That is the voice of God saying to you, to me, this is what patience feels like. This is what it feels like. Sometimes it takes a long time to get to the essence of whatever it is that somebody else is trying to do. 
This is true unadulterated patience. So, Elena, I hope that answers your question. Thanks for the question, Elena. Okay, we move on next to Heather, followed by Jason. Good morning, Heather. Hi, good morning. Heather M., commercial overeater. Larry, thank you for your service. And Phoebe, wow. Um, I don't know if I have heard um, a share that I could relate to more than, than today. Um, and so my question for you is, when when you recognized that you were um, being dishonest with, you know, saying that you did something for three and a half hours instead of three hours and those kind of situations, um, did that change come, like, immediately for you, um, or was it a, a work over time? And um, can you just tell me, you know, how how you you dealt with that, how you how you worked to fix that issue. I hope that makes okay. sense. Yep, thank you for the question, Heather. So just like recovery, the um walking through um the gateway to recovery, like I said, you know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. It doesn't happen poof all of a sudden. It happens kind of as a slow burn. And I think for me, excuse me, partly the nightly review where I had to honestly assess, was I dishonest? Starting to answer that question honestly, um, you know, did I embellish something today? I mean, at first, the question of was I dishonest was, did I tell a bold-faced lie? And I'd say no. And then it start to get, started to get a little bit more subtle. Hmm. Well, you know, I said today that um, I walked for an hour and a half when I really walked for 45 minutes. I was dishonest. And I began to realize that those little dishonesties were as important as the big bald-faced lies. And so what happened over time was that, and this might be the voice of God going back to the previous um, person who questioned, something would start to come out of my mouth. And something would make me stop. Like the one that I said about, you know, took me three and a half hours. Oh, yeah, that took me three. And I'd stop because I was ready to say three and a half. That was probably the voice of God saying, uh, it was really three hours. I think, um, Heather, something that's really helped me because this is a program of rigorous honesty, and we are Overeaters Anonymous, that honesty for me of being honest about how much I'm going to eat 
has helped me tremendously in realizing how dishonest I had been. Because when I was first in OA, like I said, before OA, I made up my own food plan. When I was first in OA, um, you know, my food plan was, well, I'll have, you know, a portion of this. Well, what does a portion mean? You know, who defines the portion? Me? Well, if I'm going to have an apple and I'm saying I'm going to have an apple, I'm going to take the biggest apple that there possibly is. Doing what I do now and being rigorously honest about my food allows me to be rigorously honest about other things also. That three hours versus three and a half hours, 45 minutes versus an hour and a half. And so by being honest about my food, then morphed into being honest about everything. So there wasn't really one thing about how I dealt with that dishonesty. It was, like I said, a slow burn as I moved through the gateway to the solution that um, it happened over over time. And I don't think that I said in my, um, in my introduction um, that, that I have been um, abstinent for um, six years now. So I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, so I hope that helps, Heather. Yeah, thank you. Very encouraging. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Heather, for that question for uh, Phoebe. Okay, next up we have Jason followed by Sherry. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Good morning, Jason Kay here. Um, yeah, thank you so much, and thanks, Larry. Good hearing you. Uh, my question is, is there a place for grit and determination in a recovered life and in God's sort of values and, and a spiritual lifestyle or is that always a sign for you of, of self-will and selfishness and pride and so forth? Oh, Jason, thank you for the question. So is there a place for grit and determination? Well, you know, I'm turning my life, my actions, over to the care of my higher power. I'm the one who has to take the actions. I'm the one who has to um, put the food on the scale. I'm the one who has to do my nightly review, no matter how tired I am. I'm the one who has to do, um, you know, talk to my sponsor and my sponsee, even if I had a terrible night's sleep. I think that's where grit and determination comes in, that I am given the gift. I'm given gifts by my higher power. I'm given the gifts of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And my willingness is where the sub-gift of determination comes in. I'm willing to do this. And I'm going to do anything to hold on to my recovery. And so if that means that um, I... um, need some help with something, something very specific. I'm going to find that help. I Let's say I've been guided that I need help with something. I'm going to work my darndest to find the appropriate help, um, like I did in finding outside help. 
I was determined to find the right combination of help. I knew it. I knew I was guided by my higher power to do that, but I had to do the footwork. So the footwork is where the grit and determination comes in. Doing, you got to put your pedal to the metal. That's the grit and determination. Thanks for the question, Jason. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Okay, next up uh, we have Sherry, and then we'll see if we have a little bit of uh, time after Sherry's question. Good morning, Sherry. Hey, good morning, Larry. Good morning. This is Sherry M., and I'm gratefully recovered today in Wyoming. Wow, this is thanks for your service, Larry, and this has been just the most amazing special edition today, uh, and all these great questions have covered a lot of what I was going to ask, but um, thank you, thank you for sharing your God-inspired talk today and transformation. Mine has to do with the honesty and that rigorous honesty, right, that we're supposed to be, and then you had brought up a couple examples where, um, so I would just like some practical feedback. So somebody comes up to you and asks, you know, how's your brother doing, for instance, or how how is so-and-so, but we're no longer wanting to engage in gossip and talk about anybody if they're not in the room to protect people's privacy, but how do we do that without them lying and then feeling like we didn't, we weren't fully honest? So I hope mm. that that makes sense, and I would just love just the practicality of it. I would say this comes up daily with normal people in life. Um, yeah, so thanks so much. Sure. Okay, Sherry, thanks for the question. Um, so my higher power guides me to, yes, be rigorously honest when it comes to me, my food, my life. Um, when it comes to other people and I'm asked, Let's just rewind that situation with the friend in the store. You know, how's that brother of yours? Oh, yeah, he's doing okay. You know, he's uh, he's doing okay. Well, at that moment in time, I believed that he was doing okay. Um, and or I could say something like, oh, you know, David. He's terrible about being in touch with people. She, you know, she also said to me, I haven't heard David, from David in such a long time. I could easily say, and this is to, was, would totally have been honest, oh, yeah, you know David. He's really bad at being in touch. Um, but he's doing okay. Um, when it comes to asking about other people, um, so uh, I have a family member who has struggled with addiction in the past, a couple of different addictions. And um, people say to me, well, how's so-and-so doing? And, you know, where is she? What's she doing? Oh, well, she's living in such and such. And, you know, she's uh, got a new job, trying some new things out. Or... Um, yeah, you know, she's she's doing okay. She's uh, um, trying this out or trying that out. Um, but I don't go into great detail because it's not my story to tell. And everything that I just said was completely honest about that person. Um, you know, 
someone might say to me, how's your husband? Well, I know and you know now because I shared it with you and you'll, you will maintain his confidentiality um, that he has a lot of anxiety. Well, how's, how's your husband? Oh, yeah, he's doing, you know, he's on the board of this and he's really enjoying that. Um, you know, and we do these um, weekly excursions, which we really like. All of that is totally honest. And yet I didn't, I didn't break anybody's confidentiality. Um, so, and if somebody asks me, you know, I heard blah, blah, blah about so-and-so. Let's say about my friend who has, um, who had an illness, pretty serious illness. And somebody says, gosh, I heard, you know, I heard that so-and-so has this illness. What do you know? And I can honestly say to that person, you know, that's not really my story to tell. And that's perfectly honest, too, because it's not my story to tell. So, um, Sherry, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, thanks so much, Sherry. Okay, it looks like we have time perhaps for maybe about three more questions or so. Um, Nancy, please. Yeah, Nancy, I got you. Who else? Nancy M. Okay, so we got Nancy and then another Nancy, Nancy M. I didn't get the first initial of the first Nancy. Uh, unless that was the same Nancy. Okay, we won't get bogged down no. with that. Anybody else? Better, better be. <laughs> Pedro. Okay. Toby W. All right, let's stop with Toby and let's see how we do here as we uh, as we reach the hour because we pay Phoebe by the uh, minute here. So <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that'd be nice, right, Phoebe? Um, you get paid by the sobriety here. Um, so let's start with Nancy L. Followed by Nancy. Um, I think I heard Nancy L. Yes, thanks, Larry, and thank you so much, Phoebe. Sure. Um, in your share, you mentioned uh, two pages in the big book that were in the 500s. I believe one was page 511, and what was the other one, please? Um, I mentioned one that was in the 400s, for the one, the apple and orange one. Okay. Oh, oh, the the spiritual experience. You mean that one? Um, I'm sorry, I didn't. I just wrote the page numbers down, and I have okay, 511. Okay, so five, but I, yep, 511 was the story Gutter Bravado. Okay, and then there was one in the 400s as well, please? Yep, that um, that was from the story, page 427. Um, that was from the story, Window of Opportunity, at the very top of the page. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, that was easy. Okay. Thanks, Nancy. And then now on to Nancy M. followed by Pedro. Hi, Nancy. Hi, this is Nancy M. in Florida. Phoebe, thank you so much for your share. I related to so much and um, really brought me to tears a lot. I I was just wondering um, if, you know, because it sounds like, you know, your personality um, was very similar to mine being the actor and wanting to be the director of everything. And I wonder if you have um, or had perfectionistic tendencies. And because 
and how you deal with that in recovery. Um, because we're human and, you know, we're not perfect. And I know my character defects sometimes show its ugly head. And then I tend to get very down on myself, which leads me back to food. So I'm wondering if, if you have that or had those similar feelings, if, you know, and how you dealt with them. I don't know if I'm making my question clear, but I would appreciate that. Sure, Nancy, I can completely relate to your question. Um, So, yes, I absolutely have perfectionistic tendencies. Um, And, oh, gosh, how do I deal with that in recovery? Um, It's interesting. I was just talking with a fellow this morning about this, and there's a wonderful reading in in, uh, the For Today reader from yesterday um, about the holidays and keeping it simple. And it really resonated with me and this other fellow. We were talking about this, about how um, it used to be for me uh, with the holidays. You know, my house was decorated. You know, I have boxes of decorations for the holidays, for Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. Um, And I have my mom's heirlooms and I have my grandmother's. Um, hand-blown icicles from Germany and have all these beautiful things and I had to put them all out and they had to be put out just right. What's happened to me over time in recovery is that keeping it simple is a wonderful way to address my perfectionism. Um, And so... It's pretty simple what I do now. You know, I pick a few things that I love, and they might not be the same things every year, and I put those out. So that's one example. Another example is um, my husband also can be a perfectionist. And um, this is a second marriage for both of us. And um, we've been married for 25 years, and over 25 years, we've pretty much been able to identify what are our perfectionistic tendencies? He is very much of a perfectionist when it comes to painting, like painting the house or painting a room. And I respect that. Um, I don't offer to help paint because it used to be when I offered to help paint, he would paint over what I did because the brush strokes didn't quite go the right way. So I get that. And there are certain things that I'm perfectionistic about that he doesn't mess, mess with. Um, I do the, the uh, cooking. I do some cleaning. He does some other cleaning. And I'm kind of perfectionistic about how I do the cleaning. And he doesn't touch those things. Okay. So we have that established. We also have a joke in our house um, when we're getting a little bit too perfectionistic. If any of you are card players, there's a rule called according to Hoyle. So Hoyle lives in our house. And our grandson the other day just said said to us, who's that guy that lives in your house? Um, and we said Hoyle. And so if either one of us gets a little bit too perfectionistic about something, we'll say, oh, is this according to Hoyle? And we laugh about it. 
so, you know, we're not a glum lot. And so we can laugh about this kind of stuff. But there are certain things that I hold on to and certain things that I let go of. And I'll give you one more example, Nancy. So I retired three years ago, right before the pandemic. Um, I was self-employed. I had an office, wonderful office. And so now in our home, my husband and I share an office. And I was really nervous about sharing this office because one thing that my husband is not perfectionistic about is how his desk is organized. I'm quite a bit more perfectionistic about how my desk is organized. So we set up our various areas in the office that's mine and his. And I can't stand looking at the mess on his desk, but that's his desk. That's his mess. So how I dealt with that was um, I, we put shelves up. They're not, they, they don't go to the ceiling, but there's a dresser and there's a shelf that kind of makes his little cubby hole. And on the top of that dresser and on the top of that shelf, I put some green plants and they're big and full. So I don't have to see the mess. So my point in sharing that little piece is that um, keep it simple. Let go of some things. You know, find out what's, what's important to me. Having a well-organized desk is important to me. Um, it's not important that his, how his desk is organized, but I don't want to see it. So it's up to me to figure out how to, to cut the visual so that I don't have to see it. Um, and part of our retirement was also that we gave up one car, so we share a car. And how my husband is in the car is very different than how I am. Um, so we came up with some agreements about how to do that, how to share a car. Um, you know, when I figure out what are what's my bottom line here, um, you know, what, what do I need? And he decided what his bottom line was, what, what, what did he need? And um, we respect that. So, you know, it comes over time, Nancy. Um, and I don't have to have the perfect holiday meal at Thanksgiving. Um, we had a big family gathering. The gravy didn't come out quite right. And when I put the gravy on the counter, I spilled it. <laughs> and I just was able to laugh about it. Fortunately, I had some more. But I was just able to laugh about it and said, oh, well, okay, that happens. And it helped everybody else relax. I would never have been able to do that before recovery. I would have been a mess because it wasn't perfect. Um, so that's the gift that recovery has given to me, keeping it simple. So I hope that helps. I uh, love it, love it. Okay, all right, thanks, Nancy. All right, next up with the question is Pedro, followed by Toby. Pedro, what question do you have? Yeah, good morning. Can I be heard? Yes, you can. Uh, thanks, Larry. Uh, thank you, BV. I really enjoy your uh, your recovery and and thank you for sharing your recovery with us. Yeah, uh, my question is that the the big book says that we have a, an obsession of the mind, an allergy of the body, and a spiritual malady. 
my question to you is, what is your medicine that you take for your spiritual malady? Um, my medicine is this program. Um, so oftentimes when I speak, I talk about how um, I have um, I have a life-threatening illness. I have two life-threatening illnesses. I have leukemia and I have the disease of food addiction. And for leukemia, I take a cancer medication, um, a chemotherapy drug every single day. And I'm very healthy. All my numbers are good. They've been good for a long time. For um, food addiction, which is a spiritual malady, I take this program of recovery. I have a food plan with the food in the cup. I do my daily practices every day, um, and I don't let up on those. If it's a holiday, I don't let up on doing those. I do those practices that I um, that I addressed in the very first question, living in 10, 11, and 12. Um, that's what addresses the spiritual malady. When I am agitated or doubtful, I pause. I ask for help. I talk about my feelings. I turn to my higher power. I do prayer, daily prayer and meditation. I do daily writing. Oh, I didn't say that in the beginning. I also do daily writing every day. Um, and all of those things address the spiritual malady because the spiritual malady gets to my, um, you know, as I talked about, um, you know, those instincts. The spiritual malady lives in those, um, the activation of those instincts that I talked about. And so my medicine is doing this program every single day, no matter what. And my family knows that I do this every single day. And um, for my 70th birthday, which was almost three years ago now, um, which was during the pandemic, so we couldn't have any any kind of family gathering. And my husband kindly put together a book for me, <coughs> inviting people in the family to write me things. And one of my grandsons, who at that time was 12, wrote me a note. And one of the things that he said in his note to me was, you seem happier now. And a 12-year-old noticed that. You know, he knows that I weigh and measure my food. He knows that I have my phone calls in the morning because he stays here sometimes. He knows all those things. Know really what I'm doing. But he knows that I'm a happier person. And that, to me, is one of the indicators of what this medicine for the spiritual malady does. I hope that helps, Pedro. Thanks, Pedro. And for our, yeah, thank you. And for our final question this morning, uh, Toby. Good morning, Toby. Hi there. Good morning, everybody. Um, Larry and Ophibi, it was wonderful, wonderful to hear you. Um, my question is very simple. Um, we're getting together, my children and grandchildren are getting together for. Hanukkah, they're coming from all over the country, 
And you said uh, earlier on, does it mean to be said? Would you please repeat that? Because um, <laughs> I had a sponsor once that would say to me when I said, you know, oh, I, Nancy said this to me, and she said, what did you say? And I would say, you know, I don't know. And then I would find out how I instigated the whole thing. And she would always say, what a good little attitude you are. So, Phoebe, what, please repeat, does, do you understand sure. the question? Yeah, okay. I totally understand the question. Nice to hear you, Toby. So, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? Does it need to be said now by me? The now is that's, what I get. Yeah. yeah, that's been incredibly helpful to me. Okay. I didn't write down the now. I thought that was very interesting that I didn't write down the now um, because I <laughs> I need to be, I usually say it now and get into a little right. bit of trouble. That's great. And thank you very much for the wonderful talk. You're welcome. It's my service. I pass. Thank you, Toby. Yeah, thank you, Toby. And Phoebe, once again, we're uh, thank you. I'll just say a, a, a thank you for the fellowship that joined us this morning. It was a real inspiring message, and just it was just lovely how you how you interspersed everything with with the chapter, but um, just gave us your personal experience. Very helpful to me. So um, we are going to now conclude uh, with a reading from page one sixty four, as we do. Larry, can I just can I just ask? I didn't leave my phone number. Yeah, and and what I was going to do, Phoebe, we we tend to leave the phone number. That was my next uh, uh, comment. Was then following that, uh, we'll end the recording, and then oh, we'll, after we'll the recording. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This way All right. Good. I forgot about that. Okay. okay good. No, thank yeah. you for asking because I I find I forget a whole bunch of stuff these days. But anyway, okay. So let me go to page one sixty four. And I'll read to you here. Okay. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past and give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Okay.